0: Hello, and welcome to NGO Soul & Strategy, the podcast for NGO leaders and managers who look change right in the eye. My name is Tosca Bruno van Vijweijken and I'm the founder and principal consultant at Five Oaks Consulting. I have over three decades of experience helping leaders in civil society manage change, invest in cutting edge leadership development, lead organizational culture change, Strength and strengthen effectiveness. I'm also a thought leader on these issues, including as co-author of the book Between Power and Irrelevance, the Future of Transnational NGOs, which is read by civil society leaders across the globe. If you are such a leader and want to look change right in the eye, this podcast is for you. The era of smart tech for civil society organizations is here. And as a sector, we better get ready to balance proactive adoption of these technologies with remaining human-centered, as well as reflective in our adoption strategies. What do I mean by smart tech? The adoption of chatbots, robots, AI, machine learning, and other things. Things which I am not knowledgeable about at all, but Beth Cantor and Alison Fine are. In their new book, The Smart Nonprofit, Staying Human-Centered in an Automated World, they argue that smart tech can eliminate grunt work, currently done by many nonprofit frontline operations and fundraising staff. In such a way, smart tech can create a dividend of time, which can be more strategically spent on frontline interaction with clients, evaluation and learning, and on horizon scanning and strategic thinking. However, as we as societies have also learned the hard way, algorithms, AI, etc. can introduce more bias in our nonprofit operations and can do large-scale harm. What all of this also means is that leaders need to be digitally literate and not leave the important issue of thoughtful adoption of technology to their chief technology officer. In this interview, Beth and Alison tell us how to go about this. Hello, everybody. This is Tosca at NGO Soul and Strategy. Today, I'm going to... Interview two women who've written a really interesting book, a very important book that's coming out next month in March 2022. And the book is about smart tech. We're going to explain it and talk about it. First, a little bit about the authors, but let me first welcome you, Alison Fine and Beth Kenter. Welcome. Thank you for having us, Tosca. Great to be here, Tosca. Absolutely. I'm, I'm, um, I'm thrilled to have you here because you have expertise about something that is very important, yet not not necessarily a body of knowledge that is very widely understood, and certainly also not a body of knowledge that I have have much of. So, first, I want to explain a little bit to how Alison and Beth and I happen to be all part of a network called Leap of Reason Ambassadors. That's an invitation-based network of nonprofits. Focused people who really um, um, care about promoting an outcome or performance orientation amongst nonprofits. I've also known Beth's uh, expertise in facilitation for several years, including her expertise on virtual facilitation. And I know of Alison's writing on a couple of books that I will mention at the end, and that we will also put in the short um, in the show notes as well as best books. So we're talking about two extremely accomplished um, women authors here. I should say uh, upfront when we talk about smart tech, I have not much exposure myself to digital or smart tech in general. Other than that, I do have an interest in digital adaptation and transformation of NGOs, but not a lot of knowledge about it, just an interest. And I'm particularly interested in what is required uh, in terms of digital literacy by by leaders. I've done some some research in the past on uh, digital campaigning platforms and how they compare and contrast with brick-and-mortar NGOs, and I was on the board of public interest registry, which is the um wholesale operator for the internet domain name.org that uh 10 and a half million uh, nonprofits ac- across the world use as their trusted domain. So I have these little bits of 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 kind of um initial exposure, but I have really no idea about uh, the topic that you wrote about. So I'm, I'm uh, very excited. The book that Alison and Beth have, have written is called The Smart Nonprofit, Staying Human-Centered in an Automated World. And so um, let me just finish the introduction by saying that when Alison and Beth talk about smart tech, they use it as an umbrella term for advanced digital technologies that make decisions for people instead of people making those decisions. So let's unpack it a little bit. So Beth and Allison, tell us first um, a little bit about why the two of you decided to work together on smart tech. How does it, this topic link into your respective areas of expertise? No,
1: Allison and I have um, been working together for we're going into our second decade and Allison will find this funny. I said, we've been working together for decades. That was yesterday. And I guess it's (laughs) because of the pandemic, it feels like decades, but for a good amount of time, we brought our first book together, the network nonprofit over 12, 13 years ago. And that was about how online social networks were going to change the way that nonprofits would do their work. And so I could say for myself. I won't speak for Allison, but my work has always sort of been at the intersection of uh, emerging technology and, and nonprofit work, and I've approached it as a trainer, and um, and and looking and sort of helping nonprofits understand uh, the benefits and the challenges of particular technologies as they adopt them.
0: I see,
2: Allison. You want to add more to that? Sure. When we looked at the ten-year anniversary of the Network Nonprofit. Tosca we wanted to look forward instead of looking back and the question we asked ourselves is what's next mm. and what's next is smart tech and uh, we had the great uh, opportunity to uh work with the Gates Foundation uh to look at uh the impact of smart tech on fundraising uh and we um wrote a paper about that called AI Forgiving that came out about I guess two years ago and and that um Led to the book um, because our work, Tosca, is always about where are we going from here and mm-hmm. how can Beth and I help organizations, particularly leaders of organizations, uh, prepare to use technology for um, great impact for social change. Mm. Another way to think about this Tosca, is we also wanted to answer the question: What can we do with the What can we do with the smart tech before the robots kill us? So we want to <laughs> get our hands around this.
0: <laughs> Got it. But it's really yeah, I, I get it completely. So you you had written this important book on the network nonprofit. Again, we'll put the links in the show note, but. Um, You said, what's next? And this is, you're right. The little I understand so far, and the more, and you're going to educate us about this, um, that makes total sense. Yeah. So what would you say, maybe starting with Beth, um, what were the main arguments that you make in the book? Well... The reason we wanted to write
1: this book, and this is not a technical tome at all, it's really directed <laughs> towards leaders. And um, this technology, as you pointed out in your introduction, is different than social media. You know, it's something we can't see. It's not visible. It's not like the refrigerator humming in the background. And it's in fact, and it's impacting all aspects of our lives, from what movies we're going to watch on TV to what we might purchase on Amazon and um, and now as the technology has gotten, there's more tech, um, computing power and the technology has gotten cheaper, it's become more available to nonprofits and everyday people for their work. And one of the, the great values or benefits of adopting this technology is the automation aspect that can kill the grunt work from mm. Organizations that just takes up so much time and is so exhausting, especially you know during uh, the pandemic, and it can eliminate that. And and if we think about it, we have this once in a lifetime moment to really think about how do we remake our, our work as nonprofits? Um, you know, we have time now, maybe if we get rid of that grunt work, do we have time to think, we have time to innovate um, internally. We have time to give staff that rest that they so need. And yeah. um, and also, and Allison likes to talk about this piece of it, what can happen externally uh, with relationships with clients and donors and pass it to yeah. Allison,
2: awesome. <laughs> so Tosca, we're looking at a thirty or forty-year arc of uh, all sorts of technologies. For the last fifteen years, certainly digital technology that made organizations go faster and faster, and the internal pressure that created that—that that, you know, staff felt to be more and more efficient. Um, is part of the Great Resignation right now, right? That idea that people are running on the hamster wheel uh, every day. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, We just saw a a data point that people check their email 74 times a day, Tosca, Mm -hmm. right? This game of email whack-a-mole is crazy making. And in the NGO world, what this looks like is constantly running from campaign to campaign going as fast as you can, not looking at uh, impact, and not having a chance to breathe. And the result is that the cultures of our organizations are incredibly transactional. Uh, It is exhausting for staff. We have very high uh, rates of burnout. And ultimately, um, staff don't get to do the work they came to do, right? Mm. Our people, (laughs) we hire people people. Right. Yes. We hire people who, who want to be in relation with other people. Um, we need to we make to them cotton paste spreadsheets from one all to the day long, all right. day long. All day long. So what we think the greatest opportunity here is to pivot from being transactional to being relational mm-hmm. and to have the time that Beth, Beth mentioned when you can get rid of the rote work. Uh, this time that we call the dividend of time. Uh, to spend on relationship building and storytelling, and problem solving, and um, network building. Can
0: we? Um, yeah. Can Can you mention uh, a couple of examples, concrete examples, both from the U.S. domestic scene, if you will, of nonprofits, but also from the international sector? And that also cross human service to long-term programming to right. campaigning and advocacy of these manifestations of smart tech so that it becomes more concrete sure. for me and for, for the listeners.
1: I, I can jump in with one. And this is both probably international as well as domestic because it's in the fundraising area and all organizations have to do this. Um, yeah. Yeah whether they're here in the U.S. or um, uh, abroad. And um, so we, we looked at in the paper that Allison had mentioned that was sponsored by the Gates Foundation. We, we uh, did a landscape analysis of how is uh, automation and artificial intelligence, how is it impacting the you know fundraising and giving? And so one quick example is a an, a, an application called Gravity. And it sits over the top of Salesforce, and it's a tool for major gift officers who who you know, spend a good portion of their time doing something called desk work, which means going through their database. Hopefully it's a large one. If it's a large organization, there's going to be a couple thousand, if not tens of thousands of potential you know, larger donors to figure out which one of these should I cultivate or spend my time on. Mm-hmm. Um, we heard from major gift officers that they might spend around 20 or 25 hours a, uh, of their week on that desk work task. And that is Uh grunt work, right? Uh So Uh the app can actually analyze that data really fast and come up with a sort of predictive analysis of this is the group of donors that you should focus your time on cultivating. Here are some details around them, synthesized, because it can swim through all the unopened Unstructured notes that people make in databases that we get overloaded when we read. And um, so, what that does is essentially, and the app can do this in like a few minutes versus 20 hours of work. So, that frees up that 19 hours, right? Or 19 and a half hours for that development major gifts person to spend time with the donor,
0: right? um, Right.
1: Cultivating them and
2: bringing in the, the gift. That's one example. I
0: see. Yeah.
2: We saw the pandemic accelerate the use of smart tech uh, around the world, uh, Tosca. So uh, Doctors Without Borders were using online chatbots to provide information yeah. about yeah. COVID. Uh-huh. Um, we saw food banks in Boston substituting robots instead of volunteers to pack uh, meals, particularly at Thanksgiving time. Uh, There was an example of Carnegie Mellon working with a school district in Pittsburgh to rearrange bus routes um, to bring meals that kids would be having who are in need would be having at school. Instead, the buses were bringing the meals to the kids. Right. And they were using machine learning to rearrange the the bus routes uh, almost on on the fly, you know, in effect. So uh, one upside of the pandemic was the acceleration of the use of all sorts of smart tech.
1: No, another one that we also love to talk about, and it is international development, is the refugee organization. And this was a a partnership with Stanford University and Maxar Satellite uh, Data, which is actually now tracking Russia, Russia's movement into Ukraine. Mm -hmm. But they had a problem during the pandemic and even before with overcrowding of refugee camps. And Mm -hmm. it's very labor intensive to go on site into the to the camp to figure out like how to reconfigure it to hold more people mm-hmm. you know what should, who and what should go where and so they were able to use um machine learning satellite imagery of different camps and uh, and reconfigure the camp so this saved time on the ground
2: yeah. and
1: during the pandemic it also you know was a safety issue
0: Got it. Yeah, that makes it a lot more uh, concrete because at first, you know, um, when we read as lay people, when we read terms like automation or AI, machine learning, natural language processing, it's kind of you know my eyes start to glaze over, right? But your mm-hmm. examples make it uh, make it a uh, real. Um, and it was also useful that you immediately distinguished um, or said what distinguished automation from social media. What are, what are the, the fundamental differences? Do you want to say a little bit more about that before we move on? I, sure. You, you um, want to go back? Yeah. I, w- I was going to tell
1: the story of, well, first of all, you know, automation is not digitization. There's a difference. Okay. Um, okay. So we think about, how uh, in some organizations, how we get paid, some get a check, right? You have to walk to the bank, put it, maybe put it into the ATM machine and you deposit it. Digitizing that process is having electronic bank transfer, right? But that's Mm -hmm. not necessarily automation. Maybe that's a a low level form of it. Mm -hmm. Um, But what we're talking about is where the technology is actually making decisions for you. And um, a couple months ago, I had, um, my car was in the shop. So I had a rental that had smart tech on it. And this smart tech was different from my car in that when you backed up, I saw um, actually the camera showed me what was behind me. And at at one point, my my trash cans were, I wasn't in danger of hitting them, but they were reflecting light off the camera. So instead of it like beeping a warning, it actually slammed on the brakes. (laughs) So it was actually making, took that decision-making away from me, the human to put my foot on the brake and the system did it. So, so that's what we're talking about when we say automation.
0: And that means that the human judgment no longer plays a role, right? And that is one of your, we'll, we'll yeah. go there when we go to, to the, uh, the, the very, uh, fundamental issue of bias in, uh, yeah. in the use of AI, but that, but that is an important point. I believe when I read your introduction chapter that you said, it's, it's the take, it's the making decisions for humans instead of humans making the decision, right?
2: That is an important distinction. And and that's why we wrote the book, Tosca, because we don't want the technology to be running all by itself, right? So our definition of a smart nonprofit is an organization that stays human-centered. We always want people in charge and that is knowledgeable and facile with using smart tech, Right. Because we know that the technology right now, uh, just like self-driving cars, aren't ready to go down the street. We Mm -hmm. need people, but we need people who understand how to make sure the technology is is being used well Mm -hmm. and where and how to use it. Uh, We like to say smart tech is Tabasco sauce. It's not ketchup. Right. A little bit goes really far. You want to use it sparingly. You want to use it strategically. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you want to use it ethically, which is an issue that, you know, we will talk about uh, Mm -hmm. in a second. All of this requires, Tasca, the C-suite to lean in instead of leaning out when they hear words like AI and automation and smart tech. We need people like you leaning in instead of leaning back.
0: (laughs) Although, if I can just push back for a moment, and this is just an impromptu uh, thought here, but... um... Human judgment, of course, has a lot of error too. It has a ton of bias, right? If you have a brain, you have a bias and so on. Or in fact, you have lots of biases. And human, so often we think that we first think about something, make a decision and then act. But actually human beings often act first and then we kind of rationalize post facto why we made that move, that action, right? But still you... Uh, what do you say to that if people push back and say, well, human judgment is not that great either?
2: So what we would say is, first of all, there's this fallacy that technology doesn't have bias um, as a part of it. And smart tech absolutely has bias built in because people made the code. And then you needed enormous amounts of data Mm-hmm. to train a system to look for patterns, because that's what AI does. Mm-hmm. And those um, data sets are biased as well, particularly in human services area, right? Mm-hmm. So not only do humans come with all of their biases, the technology does as well. So it's what kind we of want, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. What we want to do is to make sure... That we are doing our best to create a balance between humans and between technology. And we're getting the best out of both, Mm -hmm. Tosca, right? We are getting people's empathy. uh, We're getting their experience, their knowledge, uh, their concerns. And we're getting the regularity of the technology, right? The technology is not going to make an adding error, uh, and what we're looking for is that sweet spot between both that we call others uh, follow cobotting uh, as well. And that's what we're aiming for Cobotting, botting interesting. interesting. And I would, I would build
1: on what Alison was saying. I would say that, um, there's human judgment. Yes. I agree with you that there's flaws around that. And, and there are, there's human judgment embedded in the code and in the algorithms. And that's where the bias can come from. If you don't understand, you know, how, what are the assumptions behind the algorithm that's triggering the decisions? And then Mm -hmm. there can be bias in the data. You know, it could be incomplete data. It could be Mm -hmm. a historical set of data that already had bias in it. I mean, we think about like mortgages and and red lighting, that sort of thing. So, um, so there's that, but then there is a set of technology, um, we called it natural language processing that can learn, as it, you know, learn by interacting. Um, frequently this is used behind chat bots. Okay. Um, it's a more advanced uh, form of automation where it actually learns from being socialized. So when people interact with it, it will then learn how to answer uh, questions. And one example of where this can go awry, <laughs> um, it happened a-, a while back with Microsoft um, and they put a-, a bot named Tay on Twitter.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And all of a sudden, the tro- and the intent of it was to learn how to converse with young people, but the 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 Twitter uh, trolls got a hold of it, and within less than twenty four hours, turned it into a misogynist, racist, horrible, insulting bot, and they had to take it down. Wow! Um, so and and so that's so so that's we're so You can't just uh, with all, especially the more sophisticated technology, just let it let it go. We need to really pull back and be human centered, and. Um, I, I always show another example as the sort of counterpoint to that, and that comes from the Trevor Project, which is ah. a, a, a Chrysling teens in crisis, LBGQ teens in crisis, and they are using a bot not to be on the front lines because it could, that could be very dangerous, um, interacting yeah. with a, a, a teen, teen in crisis. And also their counseling is very human oriented and, and apathetic, and there's a lot of uh, rigorous training that goes into training yeah, these okay. counselors. Mm-hmm. So what they used uh, the bot for is to simulate interactions to train more counselors that and and the bot only, it's one of these advanced ones, it only interacts in controlled environments. I see. Not with the general public.
0: I see. Yeah. Well, since we went into the topic of bias and AI generated data, and again, I was struck in your introductory chapter when you quote the data scientist Kathy O'Neill who says algorithms are opinions embedded in code, right? That's, right. Uh, that, that's, that's a right. really powerful um, uh, powerful saying. So tell us a little bit more still about in what areas of nonprofit work can this kind of inbuilt bias because it's primarily white males who have been doing the, the coding of, of the initial system. In what areas of nonprofit work can it have the most profound negative impacts? And what can nonprofits do who themselves are not digital uh, coders themselves? What can they do to protect themselves from choosing uh, sets of data and code systems that, that have already that bias built in?
2: Um, Beth, why don't I start with the areas in the org, and then you can go to um, readiness uh, in, sure. in, in, in doing this. So um, I think two, two places in particular, Tosca, jump out at me as the places where bias and smart tech um, can have profound um, um, negative impacts on organizations. Uh, one is in hiring. You know, more and more organizations are using... Um, A screening software uh, to look at incoming uh, resumes. Almost everyone, whenever someone says to me they're using, oh, but don't worry, you know, we have people, you know, looking at them. What they're not necessarily um, looking at or understanding is uh, who got screened out from these systems, Mm. because the systems themselves are looking for certain patterns in resumes and language that can often weed out or be unwelcoming to people of color, uh, to women. Yeah. So that's one area where you may not even know uh, who got screened out. Can it's I secondary. speak
0: here, Alice, for one moment? Can I sure. just probe on one thing? So if we know, especially if we think about the last couple of years, a lot of attention is being paid in the context of diversity, equity, inclusion around not to be asking for deg- certain kinds of degrees mm-hmm. or degrees from certain schools, colleges, et cetera, but to be looking for experiences, to be looking for proof of competency rather than certification of one kind or the other or internships, whatever, right? Are you saying that this kind of bias will f- further make those applicants mm-hmm. in a recruitment process be weeded out because the, the, the automated process will automatically go to those kind of markers.
2: So it, it totally and entirely depends, Tasca, on, on what the system is set to look for, right? And all sorts of different systems have all sorts of different right. filters. So it can be set to be you know sensitive to the kinds of uh, markers that, that you mentioned.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: The more worrying part for me in okay. this regard is and we're back to transactional cultures. Organizations are so pressed to go quickly when the opportunity is there to automate a system to screen resumes. Um, people will just let it go, right? And you know from our opening chapter how likely people are to allow automated um, systems to make decisions for you without asking the right questions. And Beth, Beth is you know an expert in in uh, helping to set the stage for those questions. So hiring is one area. The other area are organizations increasingly using uh, smart tech to screen people for services. And uh, this has been going on for a while. Governments are doing this. NGOs are doing it as well. But again, you're overwhelmed with the demand for services. Super easy to grab software off the shelf that is, quote, smart and has AI built into it. And what you may not know is that that AI is now approving more, say, white people for homeless services, like in our opening story in the book, Mm. than people of color, Mm. right? And the system has been set up to do that kind of screening, which is why being really strategic and asking the right questions on the front end is critically important to the good use of smart tech.
0: Okay. Well, maybe let me move to, uh, to, to Beth and the topic of digital literacy of leaders, right? And I'm struggling here with the light um, mm-hmm. on my end is, is fading. But um, so you said in the opening chapter, you say making strategic decisions about when and how to use smart tech is a leadership challenge, not a technical problem. And I, again, was struck by that because I know that Outside the area of smart tech, but more broadly, when it comes to digital and digital transformation and adaptation, that often the, the, the knee-jerk reaction of leaders may be, okay, we'll just ask our CTO, our chief of technical yes. operations, right, to to give us the uh, the, the input on that. So. What should be the digital literacy, if you will, of senior leadership teams to not leave it to the CTO, the chief technical officer, but to really take responsibility themselves as a team for making smart decisions about smart tech? Uh, Great question, Tosca. Um, So the first thing that I will say is they don't
1: need to know how to code. (laughs) <laughs> right Good. so they don't need to put their hands on code. they don't need to know even know math if that math's not their thing. Um, <laughs> some leaders know math and that, that's great but um, but it's real and and not to initially jump to these questions such as how can we use a chatbot <laughs> or how can we use you know this automated CRM, you know that, that they've heard about? Right. Yeah. Um, the, the real question is, what is the problem that we're trying to solve for? What is the pain point that we want to address? And is this the and are we being human centered around addressing it? And so that's like the ready part of our framework that we have in the book called Ready Set Go. And it's kind of identifying the problem. And then not just identifying it with the senior leadership team, maybe in collaboration with the tech people sitting around the conference room or maybe sitting on a Zoom call these days, um, but to to go out and do maybe a little bit of um, ethnographic research. Interview some of those stakeholders, interview oh, some of those clients. Yes. Um, and I know a lot of the international development community is probably a little bit further ahead than other NGOs and applying design thinking methods, but this is a real opportunity to step back and really think about it from the end user's point of view. Um, and while you're there, also thinking about um taking a do-no-harm pledge.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: so by Us solving this problem with this particular use case, are we creating another problem for the end user? So that's all of the readiness stuff. The set piece is, this is where we start to dig into the tools, not just grab them off the shelf, but really explore them, understand them, ask hard questions, push back on the vendors, Can you tell us, you know, what assumptions (laughs) has your algorithm been created? What is the data set that your tool has been trained on? Um, Mm. And really understand uh, where there may be some flaws with
0: that. And your book is offering those kind of concrete questions? Yes, and a whole kind kind of
1: pathway. Yes, absolutely. You know, what questions you should be asking, uh, the kinds of sessions you may be convening. um, And and it's go slow because we don't have much time, right? You don't want to run into doing something that could scale something bad happening. And we have examples of that in the book, or even just taking the example from Microsoft that we talked about earlier. And then... Once you've done a lot of this readiness work, it's then beginning with a pilot, a proof of concept, um, seeing how it works, because sometimes we can't anticipate all the potential bad things that could happen. Um, So we need to do it on a small level, work out some of those ideas, and maybe we've discovered that this isn't the right use case and we need to kind of reconfigure. And then it's about really testing and iterating and then getting to scale. And once we're at scale, it's um, this technology is not like a pot roast. We don't set it and forget (laughs) it. It it needs ongoing
0: fine tuning and, and care because it's always learning and changing. I see, and Allison, in that chapter too, there is a subheading that I noticed um,
2: leading through resistance. Yes, tell us more about
0: what you write about there.
2: So you know well, Tosca, the resistance to change uh, in organizations, the resistance to tech uh, within organizations, and uh, this smart tech is hitting both of those, uh, you know, um, raw nerves at the same time. Uh, And so uh, what people who are introducing smart tech into organizations, the resistance that they'll find is um, the outmoded idea that um, technology can't be smart, the outmoded idea that only people can do large parts of this work, or that um, we won't be able to see the results of automation, uh, and what we know right now is the technology has become a whole lot smarter just in the last couple of years, as well as inexpensive, which is why we're having this conversation today. It is yeah. available to organizations. And the idea about cobotting that we discussed just a few minutes ago, um, which is proactively ensuring that the technology is balanced with people. And as Beth so cogently mentioned, right? That is a leadership challenge. So, so often in organizations, when you're sitting uh, with the C-suite or in the boardroom, you'll just see people put up their, you know, put up their guard, just an absolute no and not really lean into learning more about these topics and understanding what the benefit is to organizations of trying to clear out some of that crazy making rote work and allow staff to do more creative work.
0: Hmm. Interesting. I, I do. Have it's to,
2: uh... it's fear based and it's scarcity based, Tosca, that kind of leadership resistance. And that's what we're really working hard to try to overcome.
0: Yeah, because uh, while your book, um, from what I can gauge from the introductory chapter, uh, definitely sounds the not the alarm bell, but sounds uh an alert bell, if you will, around what are some of the the advantages but also disadvantages of smart tech. um i I, I yeah, I didn't um, think about it exactly that way. so um, Thinking, looking at, uh, we have a couple more minutes left. So, your book has a chapter at the end, logically, about the future of nonprofits and how they should engage with smart tech. And so, you introduce these three concepts you've mentioned already being human centered, being prepared, and being knowledgeable and reflective. Now, of course, Have taking the time and having the patience to reflect are not things that are necessarily widely available uh, (laughs) in in our sector. But um, maybe we can end on you. uh, Maybe starting with Beth unpacking that that a little bit more. Where realistically, where you see nonprofits interact most beneficially with smart tech make use of it where it's useful and be really careful around where it's potentially very dangerous.
1: You know, um I w- one example I, I'm to do to I one example I already talked about it's my favorite one the Trevor Project and, and the idea that they didn't just say oh we're gonna replace the counselors with the bots
2: mm. but they
1: really took the time to understand what the you know you know the what is the human human-centered way to approach this. Yeah. Um, Another organization that works with animal welfare uh, decided, and again, it was a bot, uh, decided that they wanted to use a one of these self-learning bots for Black Cat Adoption Week. Because, you know, uh, black cats are considered unlucky and they're hard to adopt. Um, and if you can imagine the words black and cat and self-learning <laughs> and with a public-facing <laughs> campaign, you can imagine that there's all, can be all kinds of problems. Oh, and yeah. they tried to mitigate potential problems, but Mm -hmm. it it ended up taking so much time and they sort of weighed off the risks and said, this is probably not the best use case, but they were willing to actually test out um, a a, a pilot concept of it, Mm -hmm. even with going into that, knowing that, wow, this might totally fail, but that's okay because We're learning from this so we can pivot to something that may be more effective.
0: I see. And, Alison, maybe there was one thing that I just thought about that. So, you mentioned some of the advantages if nonprofits um, work well with smart tech. And one of the advantages is reduced astroturfing. Now, again, I'm cognizant of the fact I'm not a native speaker, and many of uh, my audience are not native English speakers. So, you're explaining that. Uh, advocacy organizations too often substitute marketing for uh, real grassroots organizing. So instead of having using online petitions that are fairly superficial, if you will, mm-hmm. form mm-hmm. of of, um, of campaigning, although, uh, you know, groups like Avast might might well push back on that. But anyway, you're saying advocates could use the dividend of time that you mentioned before to really engage with supporters, getting to know them. Educating them on the issue and teaching them how to become advocates and creating their own supporter groups. Mm-hmm. Tell us more in the, in the book about that, that how this form of fairly superficial form of member engagement around campaigning can be transformed through a, a smart use of smart tech.
2: So we're back again to these uh, transactional um, engagements that organizations have been having, and that frankly, social media. Much to our dismay, because Beth and I both started out as what we call techtopians. We were so excited 15 years ago. Ah. But the reality is that um, too many organizations continue to use um, uh, social media as a one-way broadcast tool, right? Yes. That's a, right? And anything that, there, that is intake, like a survey tool, uh, is often largely used to collect email addresses. Right. That that's not real human relationship building engagement.
0: And it's not long term organizing either.
2: Right. Right. So, um, again, if we can uh, free ourselves up to then pivot to relational models internally as well as externally, we have the opportunity to really build relationships uh, in community, both online and on land. Uh, And to get to know people, for instance, Tosca, I would love to see every organization go back to donors after they've given, Mm -hmm. especially in the first year before they fall off, and ask them why this cause is so important to them. What Mm -hmm. is it about this cause that strikes your heart, which is why we give, Mm -hmm. uh, and why is it important to you? Uh, And to have those real meaningful conversations uh, with people in the absence of that. The model that we have now, this transactional model, we have what what Beth and I call the leaky bucket problem in fundraising, which is 75% of donors don't give a second time. 75%, right? right? Hmm. So if we can be a little less frantic, if we can get our heads up out of the weeds, uh, we hope there is the opportunity for organizations to really think about truly engaging with people learning with them getting to know them and building really strong campaigns with them
0: got it got it yeah it's a clear a clear case well by now I think yes looking at the time we better bring this interview to a close and by now I'm staring straight into the sun that is going down uh outside my window um Beth and Alison, if people want to know more about you, want to find out about your upcoming book, we'll put the link to it's coming out What on March 9th, I think so Mm -hmm. very soon. Um, But if they want to know in general more about your writing, your practice, your consulting, your activism, where should they go? You can Beth. well
1: well um the best place to find me is at my website, and that's ww.bethcantor, And from there you can find all my social presence, my blog, and links to and a link to the book prominently
2: displayed.
0: <laughs> okay, sounds good. And how about you, Allison? I'm at
2: allisonfine.com. Allisonfine.com, both mm-hmm. also mm-hmm.
0: your website. Well, it's been fascinating. We've barely dipped into what is a very deep topic, very new in terms of broad awareness. I think to many of our um, nonprofit and NGO leaders and managers and uh, staff that are listening. So, I really want to thank you for giving us a very, and I don't mean this um, kind of in a in a pun intended way, but. An intelligent way of looking <laughs> at smart tech, that type of technology that actually makes decisions for people. So we better make sure that we are, are, are intelligent about how we choose those forms of techs in our nonprofits' lives. So thank you, Beth and Allison for all your insights. And thank you, listeners. Um, if you found this podcast stimulating, then I hope you'll check out the other episodes of my podcast on my website, fiveoaksconsulting.org, where you'll find also offerings around courses on virtual team leadership, um, blog posts, etc. Subscribe to my email list, and you will always be the first to know. So, with that, this is Tosca, and I look forward to spending time with you on NGO Soul and Strategy next time. Thanks for listening to my podcast. If you valued the content, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, so that other leaders of social change organizations can find it too. And if you want to learn more, have a look at my website, fiveoaksconsulting.org, where you will find blog posts, recordings of interviews with me, as well as information about my co authored book, Between Power and Irrelevance The Future of Transnational NGOs. If you sign up for my email list, you will receive a free sneak peek at the book. Or feel free to email me at tosca at fiveoaksconsulting.org or contact me through my website and follow me on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook. Till we talk again at NGO Soul and Strategy the podcast for NGO leaders and managers who look change right in the eye.